there is this way in which the people who have cornered the word patriotism and use it as a cudgel are not necessarily, although more of them are conservative than liberal, I think that what they really are is righteous. Um, because I can think of some very patriotic conservative people. John McCain was an enormously patriotic conservative guy. So I don't think it's about your politics. It's more about your idea of what your job is as an American. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Corey Nathan, grateful to be your host today. Thanks for joining us for Local Patriotism, David versus Goliath. The David of Localists versus the Goliath of Nationalists. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. The forces that divide us are like an all-encompassing tidal wave. Too many of our elected officials, way too much of the content that dominates large media outlets, the algorithms that drive what we see on social media, it's everywhere. And that's what led us with this program to where it all began for Village Square, to our neighbors, to our friends, to human beings we have actual relationships with. During these times, it can seem dark and bleak. So what can save the American experiment? What can help us live more in line with our better angels? At Village Square, we believe it will be in hometowns like Tallahassee, where the organization began, or like Santa Clarita, where I live, or your hometown. And it's between neighbors like us. And it will ultimately be about who we are to each other as we at least try to love our neighbors. At the end of the day, quite possibly the only thing powerful enough to vanquish the Goliath of this deepening national dysfunction is the David of local community, local patriotism, if you will. This program is facilitated by Jovita Woodrich, a board member at Village Square and the Volunteer Services Director for Volunteer Florida, as well as Liz Joyner, the wonderful founder and CEO of Village Square. They'll be introducing our special guest for this program, Stephen Kiernan, the author of Authentic Patriotism, and Sally Bradshaw. That's Governor Jeb Bush's former chief of staff, who got off the presidential campaign trail and jumped right into being a local bookseller when she opened Midtown Reader. But you're in great hands with Jovita and Liz. Jovita, take it away. Okay, this is super duper exciting. Super duper is a really um, powerful phrase that I use a lot in my life. It was an SAT phrase. And so you'll hear me saying super duper often. It is a joke. I got some scowls there. Um, so it's our pleasure now to introduce one of our two very, very special super duper guests tonight, author Stephen Kiernan. 
As a journalist and novelist, Stephen has published nearly four million words. I've read four million words. <laughs> I've, I've said. Maybe. I probably said four million words, probably before <laughs> age three, but it's okay. Uh, his newspaper work has garnered more than 40 different awards, including the George Polk Award and the Scripps Howard Award for Distinguished Service to the First Amendment. Author of the three of three novels and two nonfiction books that include authentic patriotism, restoring America's founding ideals. Here we go. Please buy. He will sign. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Stephen received a Master of Arts from Johns Hopkins University and an MFA from the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. He has chaired the board of the Young Writers Project and served on the Vermont Legislative Committee on Pain and Palliative Care. Recently, he spearheaded the project Vermont to the 10th power out of his growing concern about what he calls federal collapse and the necessity to restore more effective and more representative democracy. So welcome, Stephen, please. Blake says I'm on. Can you hear me okay? Yes. It is super duper to be with you. <laughs> You're a super duper group of people. And, um, um, you know, I'm delighted to be back here. And um, I want you to say, first of all, I'm going to do a little presentation here. But this is not going to be like death by PowerPoint and then you all take a nap. And the only person who's awake is the one who's like, when is he done so I can go get a brownie? It's not going to be like that. First of all, you can get brownies anytime. Just don't touch the one that I left at that table. Um, second of all, this is just going to be for a couple of minutes to sort of frame the conversation here. I have to tell you also that, you know, I was here, I, was, I had the privilege of speaking here eight years ago when my book had just come out. And one thing that's different um, in America uh, between then and now is eight years ago, I had brown hair. <laughs> I think it might just be something about the lighting in here, right? Um, uh, at any rate, so, um, so time has gone by. And what I'm going to do is talk for a minute about the idea of local patriotism. We patriotic we typically means at a national level, but I think that it can exist at a local level too. I'm going to talk too fast and go too fast. And I encourage you to ignore the numbers along the way and just know that I've done my homework. And I'm trying to just create a framework for our conversation. So what I'm going to do is look back over the last eight years from when I was here and the spectacular success of the ideas I had in that time. The mess run at the moment. Beatings will continue until morale improves. Sort of the, uh, that's the national experience right now. And one possible way out, which obviously is going to be localism, is what I'm talking about. So when I came here years ago, there were a lot of indicators that the country was not in good shape. We were the only developed nation that did not have universal access to health care. We were far from it. We had many people without health insurance, many people in poverty. And because increasingly it is families who cannot afford rent and health care, rent and car payments, the average age of a homeless person in America now is nine years old. Okay, this is eight years ago. Okay, it was uh, kids going to school from shelters and then back to the shelter. Kids having Christmas in shelters, so on. These are some indicators to me that, that we're not in great shape as a country. Um, now, meanwhile, we had um, people of, of the, the liberal spectrum of things who said that the federal government is going to solve this for us or needs to solve this for us. But in fact, we had a highly polarized Congress and White House, nearly as dysfunctional as they are now, and we were $13.5 trillion in debt. So if you have a homelessness problem, there is simply not going to be a national housing initiative. It will not occur. There's too much division, and there's no money to pay for it. It's not going to happen. 
And so unfortunately, the liberal approach to solving problems is not going to work. Now, the conservative approach is to say the market mechanism is going to take care of it. And in fact, we had a good, decent economy, and it was growing there. But what you find out is that a rising tide does no, no longer lifts all boats, that the top 1% of earners were taking almost a quarter of the income home with them. And so you were seeing more and more people being left behind. So the conservative approach wasn't working either. Saying we have a strong economy, the climbing of the Dow and NASDAQ, it was not solving any problems for us. And, and so I came out with this idea, I came out with this book that was about authentic patriotism, which believes in the idea of the more perfect union and says that, that it is not simply having an opinion. You know, there were guys in pubs in Boston in 1776 who were looking down at their pints and they had opinions, but there was a guy who got on a horse and said, the British are coming. We need to be the people on the horse. And that everyone is needed to do that, that we have no people to spare because the need is so acute. And this is the book. Um, and uh, what a success. Here we are eight years later and we have 43 million people living in poverty and 27 million without health insurance. And the average age of a homeless person is still nine years old. We didn't move the needle. And in case you were either a liberal or a conservative, I'm happy to tell you that the liberal approach will not work because our debt is now $10 trillion greater. And the conservative approach won't work because, in fact, the inequality gap in income is higher than it's been since they first started measuring in 1967. So even more now, it is incumbent upon us to solve the problems ourselves. We again have a polarized Congress and White House, but the thing is different now. We were disconnected eight years ago. Now we are polarized now. This is a really interesting um, uh, survey that looked at what people on one side of the political spectrum thought of the other. And you see that 42% believe that the other side is downright evil. A fifth of them think say that people behave like animals. And I don't know what it says about Republicans and Democrats, but you know that they, they would be better for the world if many members of the other party just died. Well, that's one way of solving the problems. The difficulty is in a democracy, they're not going to die. It doesn't matter who the next president is, 62 million people voted for Donald Trump and they're still going to be Americans. They're not going to die. we got to live with them. But they're part of America too. And if you're a Donald Trump supporter, 65 and a half million voted against you. They're part of America too. And we're all in this together. People just aren't going to die away. So what a success we have in our government now, in addition to the debt that we have a record shutdown, that we have so many incidents of mass violence, we have incivility of social media, and we have foreign, foreign meddling, not just in our elections, but in our culture and trying to amplify the divisions among us. We do it so well on social media. Just a quick show of hands. Facebook users. Okay, nearly all. Um, Twitter users. Pretty good subset. Instagram. Snapchat. Goodreads. Goodreads. we got a couple good readers. Terrific. Um, who, who, who subscribes to the Daily Newspaper? You defy the norm. <laughs> you do. Super duper for you. Okay. So these are, these, are, these are problems that we... This is like on top of the other problems I define. This is all new stuff to make things even worse. And, and I find when I talk about these things, without even getting into some of the individual crises or conflicts of the time, that it doesn't feel good in my guts. It doesn't feel good. And I try to tell my sons that living in America doesn't always feel like this. 
They're 23 and 25, and I try to say, they, you know, my younger son's earliest memory is 9-11, right? So he has this whole framework, and I just have to say to him, you know, we won the gold in hockey. We walked on the moon. You know, we ended a war uh, that was very difficult and complex. And to try to tell him it's not this way. So what I find is that the first thing we need to do is pause, breathe in and breathe out. We are here. We have the privilege of existence. The second thing is to say, are we really that divided? Now, I'm just going to show you some polling data. And you may agree with these positions or not. But this is, uh, I took, I looked at about seven or eight polls, and I took the more conservative number. But it turns out three-quarters of Americans want richer people to pay more taxes. Nearly three-quarters say that climate change is real and we need to do something about it. And almost everyone thinks that Medicare ought to negotiate on drug prices. Looks to me like we actually don't disagree that much. About 85% of people think that, we, that the web should be neutral. And almost two-thirds say we should have more privacy on the web. And then 93% say there should be background checks on all gun purchases. We don't disagree that much. But if I go back through these things, where's the federal government on this? Where's the federal government on this? So if we want to move the needle, we got to do it. So what I did was um, I wrote this document called Vermont to the Tenth Power. You know, I, I spent a lot of years uh, in newspapers, but now I don't have that platform. It's amazing. When you work for an organization that buys uh, ink by the barrel and paper by the ton, and the governor's chewing you out for something you wrote, and while he's yelling at you, you just take out your pen and your notebook and start writing down what he's saying, he stops. It's amazing. Well, I don't have any of that kind of platform anymore, right? I write books that come out every couple of years, um, but I wrote this document. And just for all you social media folks, it's 8,000 words long. About as many words as people used to read in the typical daily newspaper. It takes a half an hour to read. And what it says is that the Constitution actually anticipated a moment like this. That when, when uh, about 18 months after the uh, Constitution was ratified, the Bill of Rights was ratified. And we know the first nine, the first nine amendments were about individuals, right? The freedom of assembly and of religion and of speech you know, debate about how far it goes, but the right to bear arms, uh, protection against unlawful search and seizure, protection against self-incrimination. The tenth one was a limit on the government rather than a guarantee of our rights, and it said that any powers that weren't specifically given in the Constitution to the federal government belonged to the states and the people. Again, us. And so what I did in this document was look at what would happen if Vermont decided, just by itself, to say, we're, we're still part of the United States, but we are our own place. Well, in fact, Vermont has a whole history of this. The reason it was a 14th state and didn't come in with the 13 colonies is because we had a constitution that already prohibited slavery. And for 14 years, Vermont was an independent republic until we would, could be allowed in with that in our constitution. Um, we, we have no billboards. First state to pass a bottle bill. First state to say there'll be no fracking for oil. Not that there is any in Vermont. I mean, the fact is, it's like when I was, you know, Vermont thinks it's Texas, right? They think it's Texas. It's just this little, like, it's like this, you know, afterthought on the nation, except that it's, you know. But so, that, so, um, so I had this document that said, imagine if we did this, whether our elections or their education. I put out about a whole bunch of ideas about how Vermonters could exercise the Tenth Amendment to their benefit. And again, I just put it on Facebook. I put, actually, I put it on my website and told Facebook and Twitter that it was out there. And some really interesting things happened. 
The first is that virtually every media outlet in the state of Vermont interviewed me. TV, radio, print, everywhere. The community access, cable, everything. The second thing is I had about 40,000 hits on my website, which is a factor larger than my books get. The third thing that happened is a guy who was a former attorney general asked if he could co-sign. And now I've got hundreds of co-signers. And they're people from every political stripe, and they're from every age, and they're from every socioeconomic status. And they say, yeah, we can actually do something about that. And as a result of that now, about 10 days ago, I had a beer with the Senate president pro tem. And in three weeks, I'm presenting to the Democratic caucus of the legislature. And I'm just a guy. Nobody voted for me. I'm just a guy. This was one of the things that I did. And I think part of what's happened is that it turns out there's a public appetite for this. People are hungry for a new idea about what we could do with this bad feeling in our gut. People really want something. So going local has been a thing that's going on very quietly across the country. There are now more than 500 sanctuary cities where they're saying we are not going to uphold the, the federal government's current immigration policy. When the federal government broke from the Paris Climate Accord Treaty, 50, it was 50 cities, I think it's now almost up to 90, said we're going to continue to, receive, to meet those standards and to exceed them. Sandusky, Ohio, they said, we're going to stop celebrating Columbus Day. Instead, we're going to make uh, Election Day a state holiday. <laughs> They're allowed. Did you know that all the election rules, even for federal government positions, are determined by the states? Oh. So there's like three states now that say you can't get on the ballot for president if you don't release your tax returns. Right? And that's in court. And the courts are going to, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's just states saying, like, we can set our own standards. We can decide when, where, you know, the federal government's not saying which polling places will be open for which hours. Each state is. You see? Going local. So I've just, I've come across, since this came out in June, um, stories have been coming in. I'll just tell you a couple of them. Nevada, the last place you can buy gasoline before you go to Burning Man. You all know what Burning Man is, right? It's a chance to be naked in the desert for 10 days. It's fantastic. Um, a lot of fun. I, I, I don't get nearly enough body paint on myself. Um, uh, so the last place you stop and buy gas, this guy says, we don't sell a lot of kombucha during the rest of the year, but for about three weeks, we remove a lot of it. And people stop there, and they buy ice, and they buy gas. And Nevada's one of the states where you can't just, you know, put the pump in and have it the gas pump itself, you have to hold it. And he wants to keep people moving through, moving through, moving through. So the local veterans organization comes and they just keep pumping gas from like early in the morning till late at night, they keep pumping gas. So he added two cents a gallon to the price of gasoline there. And at the end of the Burning Man Festival, he gives that money, which is usually about $10,000, to the veterans organization and they have built an excellent PTSD treatment program in that community in Nevada. Now, we can be outraged and should be outraged about, about the, the way that veterans have been treated coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. They're still committing suicide at the rate of 22 a day. 22 a day, right? We can, we can and should be outraged and calling the, the VA accountable on that. At the same time, this guy's come up with an answer. In New Hampshire, they've just, um, the state couldn't raise the uh, age for buying tobacco. State legislature failed because the tobacco lobby was so strong. So a bunch of towns are doing it. You want to buy, you're 19, you want, to buy, you want to buy cigarettes, you want to buy chew? Someplace else, not here. And they're allowed to do that. New York State, there's two really interesting Airbnb battles that are going on. One is New York City, which really depends on the revenue from hotel taxes. 
and how they're trying to stop Airbnbs there. And the others in Lake Placid where somebody's saying, I'm going to take a two-bedroom Airbnb and I'm going to put 26 people in it for Fourth of July weekend. And they both are where they cannot get federal help. They're taking a local initiative on this. Interesting thing. Um, if I just think about when you hear those stories, when you hear about the money of the veterans group, little tiny antidote for that feeling in your gut about how the country's doing, little tiny one. I, I've never been to Burning Man. I, you know, I, I guess I've been to Nevada. Yeah, I've been to Nevada, but you know, it's not really in my consciousness. Um, so there were some studies about people who got involved and what it was like after a year. And this is this is just two bits of data. And um, this is people who, put, who filled in the, the, it was one of those, a little, not very much, uh, and quite a lot. And this is people after a year of being engaged in a local civic initiative. 75% uh, of them said they were happier. Their life, two-thirds said their life had more sense of purpose. You see here, again, sort of the antidote. Here's the prescription, right? All those people, by the way, were busy. They were all busy. But look what happened for them. This is the other one. Did their life improve? Very improved or somewhat? How would you feel to, if you had an opportunity to improve your emotional outlook, physical health, and social life? Right? This is, this is in fact, I think, the ailment that's under the political divide, which is about our sense of community and connecting with one another. So I'm going to finish my little talk here by telling you about Susan Stuck, a neighbor of mine. Susan... Um, owned the house that is right at the major four corners in the town of 3,000 people where I live, Charlotte, Vermont. A metropolis of 3,000. She lives across the street from the general store and across the street from a house that now is the only offices in town. She's about three doors away from the post office, the fire station, the town hall, and the town library. And if you have that house, if you own that house, there is a responsibility that comes with it, and she totally understood it. And she had, like, I bet by now she's already got 50 carved pumpkins out there because she understood her responsibility for Halloween. And the day after Halloween, there'd be, there'd be turkey things, and after that there would be, um, you know, Christmas ornaments and lights. And she understood in the middle of town that she had to have flags out on Flag Day and on the 4th of July. She understood that she was part of the fabric of the community. She's a food writer for Eating Well magazine and Bon Appetit occasionally. She's riding with a friend of hers down to New York City for a food uh, conference, <clears throat> and a trucker is coming the other way in an 18-wheeler, and he falls asleep at the wheel and plows into him. And the woman who's driving is killed, and Susan has 26 broken bones, including the, uh, both femurs, tibia, and fibula. So her legs are just shot. And, um, and she comes home from... Um, at that, at that time, I lived about six doors away. And, and there was a day that was like the day she was in the hospital for a long time. And I realized, coming, coming from the general store, I was getting milk, that her lawn had not been mowed in all that time. So I went to my house, and I got my push mower, and I went out, and I'd done about a third of her lawn, and I ran out of gas. So I went back to my house and got the gas can and went to the gas station. And by the time I came back, someone else had finished her lawn. And that evening, when I was going out to do something else, uh, I drove by, and somebody I didn't even know was weed whacking around the, the trees and that sort of thing, okay? And Susan now, you know, she's home. She won a lawsuit uh, against the driver and the company and making him drive too many hours, so she has a very nice 
second home in Outer Banks from that settlement, and she spends about half of the time in Vermont, and the house is not quite as decorated as it used to be, and it takes her about 15 minutes with her walker to get across the street to the general store, and it's 22 years later, and she has not mowed that lawn one time. <laughs> Nobody coordinated it. There was no volunteer network. There's no, like, website. There's nothing. It's just people will drive by and say, oh, Susan's lawn needs mowing, and they do it. And they do it. Little bit of an antidote, right? Okay, that's all I got from my introduction here is to think about those antidotes. Doesn't that feel better? It's almost like brownies. <laughs> okay, thanks for listening. Yeah. Thank you for using Stephen. So, how many of you were here and met Stephen eight years ago? So, yay. Um, so I think one of the things that struck me and one of the reasons that I wanted to invite him back is that you, you spoke the language that we began trying to speak here at the Village Square eight years ago. Um, and I, I think I didn't know quite what a genius you were until I reread your, your book and, and realized just sort of how ahead he was of, uh, of all of us, really. And even more so then that we found out that, that the sort of the, the lesson that we kept coming back to at the Village Square um, as we watched things decompensate in Washington is the same lesson, which is ultimately there is, there is something that's underlying this that can only change in communities. And obviously that's, you know, that's a, that's a big job, right? Um, but it's also, we're the only ones, you know, in this community who decide who we are to each other. Um, so we've come, we've come back around to that um, understanding over and over again, and you really had deepened your thesis about authentic patriotism to essentially uh, assume the same thing, which is we have to, it has to be about living where we are, bottom up, not top down. You know, I was, when I was talking with Tom earlier, um, I told him about a guy that I worked with at this one newspaper for a lot of years. Um, his name is Don. He was a sports writer. And um, he's the sort of guy, you know, I worked with him for 15 years. And, and the, uh, the day of 14 years, he, he, the day of his retirement party, I said to him, who was the quarterback of the Essex Junction High School foot, football team in 1971? And he said, Teddy Wickham. And I said, you know, who was the best uh, free throw shooter in, uh, in Vermont high school sports in 1989. He knew the name right away, and I said, what's my name? And he said, oh, that's a trick question. <laughs> okay, he was not a guy that I was close to. He was just a guy who was really into being a high school sports writer all his years. And he could have had, he had, in fact, an employee parking spot that was right near the building, but he used to park instead about eight blocks away. He would walk through the old north end of Burlington to get to the office. And on the way, he did it on purpose, um, and on the way, he would pick up trash until he couldn't carry anymore. And there was a, a, a like a, a municipal waste barrel right outside our office and he would dump the trash in when he came in. And he did it every single day. And at the end of, you know, toward the time that he was retiring, he was saying, you know, he was going to kind of miss that. One of the sports writers said, that is, that is like the worst area in the whole city. You're never going to change anything. Picking up trash here for 15 years, you won't change a thing. And he said, changed me. And you know what also changed me? Because I heard him say that, and I became the guy who picks up trash. And, um, and just, you know, you walking down the street here in town on the way. I went to, I went to Harry's for tacos for lunch 
walking from the hotel, and there was there was just there was just a couple of coffee cups, no big deal, but you know now there aren't, and that's not like yay me. It's just actually saying this belongs to me. This belongs to you. If I come to your town, I'm not going to litter it or let anyone else litter it. And so, you know, it becomes like that retail, that much like, what's my sensibility here? My sensibility is there's trash on the ground. Let's pick it up. I got two free hands. Let's pick it up. And yet in a lot of ways, we don't really connect that to, you know, our functioning in the democracy, right? We sort of don't, we, we think of them in two different boxes, right? That we don't, we don't, so your, your definition of um, an authentic patriot is, um, someone who sees a problem and declares it cannot be allowed to persist in a country as great as ours. You know, uh, the big, the revolution was not a war. The revolution was an idea. And the idea was that every individual was from birth endowed with rights and with sufficient conscience and capacity to participate in self-governance. We stopped being subjects and started being citizens. And that was a profound change. Again, I was talking earlier about the Vermont Constitution. Another thing that was problematic is in Vermont, they consider the wild animals, the deer and the fish, to be the public's property. And that was very specifically against the king, where if you kill a deer on the king's land, right, you could be executed for that, you could be jailed for that. And it was constitutional. And the result is all of our water quality is so great because it belongs to everyone. Nobody can own, even if you have all the land around a pond, somebody manages to parachute in. That's their pond, right? And there was this idea of that kind of power. And, and as always, with power comes responsibility. And there's a way that I think people think forwarding a tweet, even participating in a march, that's not nothing. But it's not the same as doing the work. And, and that is actually the most, that's the, the, the most democratic democracy. It's not, what am I going to vote for the guy who's a thousand, the man or woman who's going to be running the federal government a thousand miles away? I mean, it matters. It matters enormously. But um, in my community, we just eliminated parties on our select board. Yeah, there's no Republican or Democrat. You run for select board? You're running for select board because you're a farmer or you're a, an engineer who commutes or... You're a writer with a little free time. That's democracy. Much more than, it's not just the 10 minutes in a voting booth. So I want to ask you about the word patriot and patriotism. Um, because, because interestingly, um, one thing you may not know about what we do is that lots of words are dead to us. <laughs> They're really, it's really hard to structure titles and programs uh, uh, because you have to avoid words, because we've essentially uh, made our language partisan, right? And, and so we walk straight into calling this local patriotism intentionally. You made the decision to title your book Authentic Patriotism, and that is a loaded word. And I, and I have to say, I get, I get pushback. Um, and I'm just sort of curious sort of how you navigated that um, concept. And yeah, I would say badly. Um, you, know, you know, I found myself in, in a debate on um, uh, the morning uh, trio news show on Fox discussing what, uh, uh, what patriotism was. And they, they kicked my butt. Boy, they were so comfortable on camera. And they were so comfortable with this idea of patriotism as this kind of, the, I like to use the word in the book, I use the word cudgel. 
just like you don't agree with me, therefore patriotism, I'm wearing a flag lapel pin, Buster. Where's your flag lapel pin? Right? And um, that's just righteousness. And maybe nationalism. That's not patriotism. Sometimes patriotism is having your heart broken by your own country. Kids in cages break your heart. I don't know what to do about immigration, but kids in cages breaks my heart. And I feel like that, that, that anguish is a patriotic emotion. You know, in the same way that if, if we can participate in solving stuff like that, that that is also patriotic. And I go back to my fellow in a pub in Boston in 1776. Man, he was, he was not a revolutionary guy. He was passive. And sometimes we all are. And sometimes we need, then we need leaders and sometimes we need followers. But um, I think patriotism is a much more an active thing. It's saying, uh, you know, we can do better. And the well-being of our country and the well-being of our community is my, my job and my responsibility. You know, if something's wrong with, with my sons, I don't consider that someone else's job. Not even their mom. I take very, very personal responsibility for their well-being. And so, you know, Joan, my 88-year-old neighbor, you know, if there's a big snowstorm, I'm over there with a shovel. Not because I'm a good guy, but because we're in this together and I get to pick from her pear tree every October, right? (laughs) And she has more pears than 90 people could eat. And I have to pick them all and pretend I'm going to eat them all. (laughs) That's patriotic. But so, so, you know, there is this, there is this way in which the people who have cornered the word patriotism and used it as a cudgel are not necessarily, although more of them are conservative than liberal, I think that, that what they really are is righteous. Um, because I can think of some very patriotic conservative people. John McCain was an enormously patriotic conservative guy. So I don't think it's about your politics. It's more about your idea of what your job is as an American. So have you grown... One of the things that we've seen sort of on the left is, is the opposite, right? It's, it's sort of the, the equal and opposite reaction of, um, you know, we got to get rid of it and start over, you know, what a big mess. And, and I can see, like, how conservatives look at the left side of the aisle and think, who are, are, you, are you with us? Is this a country? Do we have something in common? Do we have kind of a through-line history. And you speak, you write very eloquently about the idea, the, the American idea of a human and sort of what, what, our, what our story is, where it started, and how it has to move through. Yeah, and, and, and you know, if I did a bad job on that, I think the way our nation did on the human, we still, we didn't do such a great job either, right? We didn't, we didn't uh, believe that women should vote until, what, 1920? Right, and and we took we took a, a whole race of people and enslaved them, and then and then let them out of slavery in a way that basically perpetuated a lot of the injustices and had institutional barriers to their success. I mean, I think like, you know, we we still have work to do on that. That's the whole idea of the more perfect union, right? It's not done. In the same way, you know, we were talking about this earlier. Um, I, two days ago, I read this guy. I don't even know how it came across my my desk, but it was about a guy who's a sports theorist, and he said there's two kinds of sports. There's time sports and there's infinite sports. So, you know, if you have a football game, the kickoff happens and the clock is part of the game the whole time, right? But if you're playing Marco Polo in a pool, you play until you're done, right? The goal is fun. And he said, this is actually a metaphor. This is not just true in sport. You don't, you don't participate in a friendship to win. It's an infinite game. 
You don't participate in a marriage to win. It's an infinite game. And I would argue you don't participate in a nation to win. It's an infinite game. And in fact, it is an infinite game because regardless of who the next president is, there are going to be 50 or 60 or 70 million people who don't like that person. They're not going to die. They're here. And we're in it together. So let's play Marco Polo. And the ball goes back to the other side, and then we have to do it again, right? That's right. what That's right. The, the endeavor that we are jointly engaged in. Exactly. And, and we are in it together as much as if we were um, three guys in a spaceship of different politics going to the moon or were a bunch of people stuck in an elevator of different sensibilities and races and education levels and all that stuff. We're in it together. Every once in a while you see it, you know, the um, uh, Mr. Rogers thing about, you know, whenever he sees a tragedy, he looks for the helpers. Well, we got to be the helpers. Thank you. Um, so we've spent some time on the individual um, and obviously in some ways how we all connect to the whole. I want to spend a little bit more time on the whole. I wanted to read uh, a couple of quick things from your book. So this notion, e pluribus unum, in the United States today is almost entirely gone. Our society currently is characterized by isolation, separation, the diminishment of community, the electronic virtualization of friendships and contact, the loss of mutuality, the disappearance of common purpose. Emphasis on the individual has flourished. Regard for the whole has withered. And so I um, want to go to one of our local patriots here, Liz, real quickly. Um, and if we were going to reverse that and say out of the one many, I'd love for you to just speak to that a little bit. Yeah, but I didn't. I I wasn't thinking of uh, myself that way. But um, but I I really think that the thing that I've learned over the years of doing this repeatedly is that this is that that this is easier than we think it is. It's almost that we just simply don't do it right. One one of the things I um, the the little slideshow that I had up it, it dawned on me that I go all over the country and talk about what it is we do here in Tallahassee and at the Village Square and at some of the other endeavors that we do. And um, and I rarely talk with you all <laughs> about where we do, we do what we do. We just kind of do it. And one of the things that I regularly um, talk about is about how, in a lot of ways, we think that we don't spend time with each other because we don't like each other, and our problem is that we don't like each other. I would actually reverse it and say that we don't like each other because we don't spend time with each other. And it is almost an invariable, for the 13 years that I've done this now, it, it, it is, as night follows day, if I spend time with anyone and, and really sort of walk the walk a little bit with them, just even, even just simple things like hear about their family or just grab lunch or something, I, I, my opinion starts to shift. And so, so it, I mean, it's kind of a frustrating experience, right? Which is that if, we, if, if only we just intentionally spent time with each other, and it's not that the, disappear, the, the, um, the differences of opinion are going to go away, because that's actually what's going to stay, and it's supposed to be that way in a democracy, right? Um, that, that we're going to have different opinions. It's like with this big elephant, and we're looking at the elephant from different perspectives, and we know different, we, we know different things. We've had different experiences. That's what we're supposed to be doing, you know? 
And, and, and in a lot of ways, it just feels like, the other thing I, I tell people pretty regularly is I feel like we've forgotten our own idea. Like we don't, here we are in this, you know, light in the world for 200 and almost 50 years that has shined the, the light of democracy into far corners of the world. And we've forgotten what it's supposed to be. It's not about us agreeing. It's about us dynamically engaging with each other. And, I, and, and sort of in, my, in the walk that I've walked these years, I have learned, I, like, I've learned so much from people who really don't agree with me politically. And more or less, I still vote the same way. And more or less, I have the same opinion on issues, you know? But, but I just, I, 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 it's like I can see what they're talking about even if I, if I, don't, if, if I don't agree. So I want to jump in on that. Two, two things. One thing is I left out in the story about Susan's lawn. Um, when I was going to get my lawnmower and when I was walking it up the street to go to her house, I had a lot of hesitation. Not that like, her lawn needed mowing, but I thought she might object to me being on her land, uh, that uh, maybe I was being presumptuous. Maybe she wanted the grass to be long so everyone had known. She didn't know and she'd had a real trauma. You know, like maybe I had all these ways in which I felt like it, it might, might not be okay. And she was coming back the next day. I couldn't ask her. And I was going to knock on her door. Hey, welcome home. Can I mow your lawn? You know, I, I didn't want her to know it was me. And so there was a hesitation that I had, that I had to overcome. And it's the same as, uh, you know, if any of you have been a participant in something where you need to do any fundraising, you know, that... <laughs> Hi, I'd just like it if you, sir, we haven't met, but I'd just like it if you would give me some money, please. It's like, oh, there's a a courage that it takes. And I think that's true with civic engagement. And and so that's the first thing. And the second thing is, I don't really care very much what people's politics are. Where I live, you know, it is, um, is this farm going under or not? Is the lake clean or not? You know, there was a, there's a dead skunk dead in the road right in front of my house. Is the road commission going to take care of it or do I have to? Probably I have to, you know. Um, and um, is my neighbor next door, John, going to be okay? And there were some, two guys who were working on a Habitat for Humanity house in my, in my town. And they worked on a house together every Saturday for seven months. And the last Saturday was they, they found out that they had voted for different people for governor in the election the Tuesday before it. And that last Saturday, they just gave each other a hard time the whole time. Because one guy kept saying, oh, of course you measured wrong. You liberals never know. You know, it was just, it was really fun, right? Because it turned out they had such a base of understanding and mutuality between them that politics was like, oh, yeah, that. Yeah, we, we do actually feel strongly about that. But, it's, but, but that's not really central to our lives. You know, look, um, in this room, I'm, get, I'm willing to bet that everyone in this room has got more than a high school education, has a roof over their head, has a bank account, and owns more than three pairs of shoes, that puts you in the top 4% of humanity. Our politics is like, it matters. It definitely matters. But what we do with, oh, we're in the top 4% of humanity, we got 96% to pull along, right? And in fact, we've done great. If you look at infant mortality around the world, if you look at the people living in extreme poverty around the world, you look at violent crime around the world, we've made enormous progress in the last 30 or 40 years. But it's now like, can we bring it close to home and get over that hesitation because this person may not agree with me politically? Well, guess what? We are, we're, the, we're the lucky ones. We won the lottery. Here we are. Everyone in this room tonight, we won the lottery relative to the world, relative to the 7 billion. So, so what do we do? 
Um, so I think we could kind of summarize a little bit of what we've talked about. True patriotism serves, which I think is something that you had um, written in your book. And I love this. Um, what Liz was saying about just this difficulty, but that ultimately we are um, connected and that we don't have as much to lose as we think we do. I was saying to her earlier that if I'm going to really dislike someone, it's probably because they were mean or they took my parking space, right? So, so if we're going to have this energy, you know, whether you're black or white or liberal or conservative, if you took my parking spot, I don't really care who you are. You're kind of a mean person. Um, unless you didn't see me and there could be a whole thing and we'd get out of our car and talk about it and we'd be friends. So, you know, if you think about it that way, the idea that are, there may be reasons why you have a difficult time with somebody, but they're not probably the reasons that you think that you do. Oh, we do have a question. Forgive me being a little slow on the uptake. I was trying to digest something that, uh, sir, that you said early on, and it's kind of a way of a comment. And, and I, I agree and support everything that you've said and, and the philosophy under, that undergirds it. However, the big challenge I think we have with our grassroots uh, coming together, finding common grounds of kindness and service, which I think is kind of what you're talking about, and I certainly agree with, we come back to these percentages that were on the chart, which many of us are aware of, which is the vast majority of the people in the country, yet that's not being represented, and that matters. And all this that we do at the grassroots level, which is rather service-oriented, helping one another. And I think it's educational, too. But it's somewhat obviated because the way we've evolved governmentally at the national level, that 1% is buying the government and making all the rules and pulling the rug out from under millions, including that average age of nine that's homeless and and going to school from a shelter. That isn't going to change, I don't think, except in the very long term, unless what's happening at this local level changes that 1% versus the 99%, which is the money buying the votes and freezing up Congress and any progress getting done yes. in helping those major injustices going on in the country. Um, I'm looking for something because I want to read. Thank you for that question. Great question about what, what about the fact that the federal government is not responsive to these needs. And, you know, and I, I think there's, there's a two-part answer. The first part is that increasingly uh, the federal government is, um, let's say, delegating. So, um, for example, the Clean Water Act gets almost no enforcement by the federal government. They give states money to enforce the Clean Water Act. And I'm willing to bet in this state, I'd rather have you guys doing it than Washington, right? Um, and uh, the Clean Air Act, again, there's, there's power that's delegated to the states. Medicaid now is largely a block grant for the number of people that are going to be covered. And it's up to the state to determine how that money will be spent. So that's sort of one kind of practical thing. The second thing... Is to, say, is to say it's not always true that the federal government doesn't lead, but I'm going to read you a couple of cases from the past where the states led, okay? And this is why I was looking for it. So um, tw- 23 states 
gave women the right to vote before in 1930 it became federal law. It started because Wisconsin was a territory that we had already given women the vote, and when it was added as a state, that was the beginning of it, and it got up to 23, and then it became national. Um, 20 states had legalized interracial marriage when the Loving versus Virginia case went to the Supreme Court, and in 1967, they upheld interracial marriage. States led. Um, uh, 17 states had amendments or laws uh, providing women with reproductive rights and choice over their bodies uh, when Roe v. Wade went to the Supreme Court in a 7-2 decision. And 28 states had legalized uh, some version of same-sex marriage um, before the Supreme Court uh, made it national in 2015. Issue after issue after issue. Whatever you may feel about any of those individually, states lead. And states are led by their communities. If Miami can figure out how to deal with climate change, it will help Florida deal with climate change. It will help the entire eastern seaboard right up to Maine deal with climate change. And maybe then you can count on Washington to take credit and put some funding in place. The states lead. And so, so yes, we do need to do more about how campaign money flows. I have a hard time thinking of a corporation as a human being. Right? I understand like where the law, the legal history is there, but to me, just on the face of it, it seems to me like there's a repair, there's a remedy that needs to occur. But while that's happening, while that fight is going on, the states can lead, and communities can lead states. And in the end, all we have is ourself, our one vote, and the 24 hours we have in each day, for however many days we're blessed to live here. So I wish that I could say, Evan, we just got to vote those guys out, term limits, whatever. I think that part is going to be very complicated and slow. But in the meantime, we can do something about that nine-year-old right here. In, in, uh, in Burlington, Vermont, where the average age is a little younger, it's about seven, they found, they developed some ind indicators in the human services agencies where they know if someone's at risk of losing their housing. And typically what happens is they lose their housing for about eight months they lose all their possessions. They have all the trauma for the kids. They rebuild. They get them better jobs. They get them some kind of subsidized housing. The whole thing takes about 18 months, and it costs about $9,000. But they found by spending a little money on indicators that the typical amount that a family didn't have to keep them in their home was $1,250. And then they went on a campaign, and they said, save a family. Will you give $1,250? Will you give $1,250? You just saved a family from all that trauma. And it's like the best campaign they've ever had. And now they're catching these families and these kids before they fall into homelessness. And my belief is that if Vermont is able to do, if, if they can take that Burlington idea and make it statewide, that pretty soon it'll be all of New England. And then maybe Washington will start doing it and they'll take all the credit. <laughs> and I mean, isn't it in some ways, isn't this what conservatives have been telling us for a long time? Is the idea that the, the government closest to the people civil society closest to the people. I mean, to me, it's been sort of a creeping awareness I've had because that's not my, um, I come more from the left side of the aisle that this is, maybe this is something that we can agree on, that we can't, that we can't wait around, that we shouldn't wait around, community up. Well, from what I consider conservative, I figure that just means I'm normal. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to um, just take a break real quick so that we can introduce our next um, very special guest. Um, please help me to, to welcome Sally Bradshaw to the stage. Stage where Sally, here she comes. 
So I'm going to tell you a few quick things about Sally. She is the owner of Midtown Reader. Has anybody patroned that store? As she served as senior advisor to Florida Governor Jeb Bush's presidential campaign. She's also served as chief of staff to Governor Bush during his tenure as governor and managed two of Bush's three runs for governor. Sally previously served as senior advisor to Florida House Speaker Will Weatherford and to the 2008 Mitt Romney presidential campaign, coming off the 2016 presidential campaign trail. Concerned about the state of civil discourse, Sally opened Midtown Reader, curating a safe place for people who cared about learning to come together and have civil conversations, even if they held widely different political perspectives. So we're really glad you're here, Sally. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, So tell us about the motivation. uh, What drove you specifically um, in terms of what you were seeing in the climate to open Midtown Reader? So, so honestly, I, ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to have a bookstore. I love to read. I've read every Nancy Drew book probably 37 times. <laughs> My mom was a teacher, and I grew up in the Mississippi Delta and spent many, many weekends in our public library or in a local independent bookstore and loved learning. And so it had always been my secret um, dream to have a bookstore. But obviously with the dawn of Amazon, it didn't seem potentially very lucrative. And I might say I'm a volunteer in my business. I am a a full-time, I do, I do. And so I I got distracted in college and got very interested in politics and um, had an internship in Washington for a member of Congress. And that led to me actually going to school in DC and working in DC. And I loved the concept of being able to change people's lives through substantive discussion and debate about policy. There was a time when that occurred in our country (laughs) where you actually could have a conversation about whether teaching a man to fish or giving a man to fish was the right approach, but you did not question someone's motivations. You all knew you wanted to help each other. You were human beings. That has obviously evolved and changed over the past 20 or 30 years. And I ended up in the 2016 presidential campaign and was on the losing side of of the Republican primary working for Governor Bush. But I was in Nashua, New Hampshire, and I was telling Stephen earlier something, you know, how in social media things pop up on your screen and you will be Googling, you know, I don't know, a particular type of clothing or a vacation, and all of a sudden someone is marketing to you about that exact thing. Well, I don't know what I was looking at, something having to do with education, and a Forbes magazine article popped up and said that Tallahassee was the smartest city in Florida, which just stunned me. We all knew Living here. (laughs) And they had an algorithm that they were using to measure educational opportunities, closeness to, you know, great schools like FSU, which is a top 20 public school and the, you know, largest historically black college in America, FAMU, a great community college system, uh, wonderful access to public education, higher standards uh, in education in Florida. And they had named Tallahassee as the smartest city. And so in the midst of preparing for the, you know, whatever the next terrible Republican presidential debate was with 20 candidates, I thought, hmm, this is research about the potential for an independent bookstore. People in Tallahassee actually read. They have a love of learning. Maybe when everything goes south, hopefully soon, because we were all miserable, I can go back to Tallahassee and open a bookstore. And so we have done that, and October 12th will be our third year anniversary. So I hope you can see 
and I am a shameless bookseller because I did bring Stephen's book up here. This is a terrific read. If you have not had a, had a chance to read this or go through it, we have copies available tonight. It is a terrific, terrific read. And he actually quotes Abigail Adams saying, these are times in which a genius would wish to live. And that can be tough when you're fighting tough fights, like some of you in the audience are. But he goes on to quote her saying, it is not in the still calm of life or the repose of a Pacific station that great characters are formed. So these are times in which all of us should want to live and make a difference, I think. And um, we're trying to do that at Midtown Reader. So you have hosted a number of gatherings there. Also just had a lot of conversations with, I'm sure, a lot of different characters. Um, can you give us um, a couple of examples of how those things have unfolded? There's anything that's been kind of a surprise to you over the last few years? I lived in a silo for 30 years. For those of you who've worked in state government or city government, and you kind of get in your world, and Thomas is nodding because he knows what I'm talking about, you're dealing with whatever the latest hurricane is or the latest act of violence or the latest challenge economically. And so you think that everything you need to know and everyone you need to know is in that silo with you. And what I have learned in um, owning and operating an independent bookstore, which is fortunately, thanks to you guys, been become a bit of a community center, is that we've got to break down silos. We have to bust these silos because Tallahassee is full of fascinating and interesting people who want to do good, who want to change the world by changing it locally one step at a time, to use Stephen's examples. And we've become a bit, of, there's actually a, a TCC professor who considers us his post office. He drops mail off for his colleagues at the bookstore and they come pick it up. And I never say no. Why would I say no to that? <laughs> Daryl knows exactly who I'm talking about. Um, I've learned a lot about um, how destructive labels are. People have come into the bookstore and seen content that I carry and say, I can't believe you as a recovering Republican, now registered independent, would carry some of this content. It, it's actually liberal or progressive in nature. And I find that always interesting because it shows you the lens through which we view each other, which can be very, very destructive instead of meeting each other where we are and being human beings. And I actually had a situation once, um, since Fox News was mentioned, I'll have to give this as an example. I had a situation where we try to sell a lot of different diverse content, but we always have the New York Times bestsellers because someone, I'm a bookstore, so I'm not going to censor material. And when I first opened my bookstore, uh, a conservative commentator, Ann Coulter, quite controversial, had a number one New York Times bestselling book out. And so we had this book, and I am, to be honest, not a huge fan of Ann Coulter's, but she was on the Times bestseller list. Someone would purchase this book, so I left it on a table. And I would come in the next day, and the book would be gone. And I would think secretly, oh, thank goodness that Ann Coulter book sold. So I'm done with that. I can mark that out of inventory. But I kept noticing that the book would reappear back by the coffee pot, or it would be upstairs in a stack of books to be returned. And it dawned on me that one of our very own booksellers was taking Ann Coulter off the shelf and hiding her so she would not sell. And I mentioned that just because 
I think, I think it's important that we all be realistic about our own biases and our own prejudice that we bring to these challenges that Stephen mentions. No one is immune from this. None of us on the stage, none of you in this room um, are pure and perfect when it comes to not judging each other, uh, not looking at each other through a lens or a label. And so it's really, really important that if we can agree on, you know, 80% of things, we need to provide recovery for victims of gun violence or for Hurricane Michael challenges or whatever, you know, the issue of the day is, potholes, then we ought to be friends at least 80% of the time. We ought to find ways to work together. So we try to provide a venue at Midtown Reader where there's something for everyone and we can meet people where they are and then expose them to new ideas and new content. And so one of the things that Sally isn't exactly sharing is that she has just been steadfast about making sure that her bookstore has a variety of opinions. I mean, you go, uh, you have this wonderful feature ahead of elections where you look at the table and and you go, okay, it's all here. Um, and and to me, it's just like such a, it's like the village square in a bookstore. It's really inspiring. That's so nice of you <laughs> um, and so I want to ask you about. Uh, I think that you you have a story that you went through that you, you sort of went from off the campaign trail and then into opening Midtown Reader that I think a lot of people probably don't know about. Um, it's just sort of the experience of, of what happened to you, and, and you've got kind of a fan club. Uh, <laughs> I do still get fan mail, and it's not really fan mail. Fan mail. Yeah. <laughs> I had, so, so Governor Bush got out of the primary in February of 2016 when he lost the South Carolina primary. That was our last shot, really, on our path to the nomination. It was very short-lived. And uh, I came back to Florida. I'm 54 years old. I was a little tired of the political world, but was still a registered Republican, still wanted to be engaged and evolved where appropriate. Um, I obviously did not like Donald Trump, not because he had beat the person that I was working for, but because I had been to a gazillion debates with, I think, a lot of candidates who were thoughtful and substantive, and I felt he had, to some extent, made a mockery of the process. But there were strong conservatives who were good people who supported Trump. There were people in the labor movement who supported Trump because they felt they'd been disenfranchised in the Midwest and that Washington had become elitist and no one was paying attention to their concerns. So I came back trying to decide what to do next. And then ultimately, at some point um, during the Republican primary, Trump did a series of things that were just very objectionable to me. And I quietly went and changed my voter registration in Gadsden County. Um, in fact, my husband did the same. He's here tonight. And we just sort of quietly below the radar screen went and did it. But as you, as you know, in Florida, we have the sunshine law. And so nothing is quiet. Everything is public. <laughs> and within a week or 10 days, I had gotten a call from a reporter asking to confirm that I had changed my voter registration. So I told her I would answer questions in writing about why I did that. And I did. And it I was a slow news day. I guess at the time, and it it made it onto CNN and several other outlets that Jeb Bush's outlets, former New York Times, Washington Post. <laughs> and so, so it was Sally a slow news day. Went to the voters' <laughs> registration office, and then boom, there it was. It was it was a slow slow news time. It was between the two conventions, I think. But um, I did, you know, actually receive you know terrible emails, and I, I also received really beautiful emails from other Republicans who felt conflicted and concerned about the state of the country. But I received, uh, you know, snail mail, 
emails, uh, a lot of commentary from the peanut gallery about um, how on earth could I do this? How could I abandon the party? How could I? And for me, it wasn't very complicated. It was just sort of, uh, it was simple. I, I, I thought Trump's comments to the mother of a dead soldier were totally inappropriate. And at some point, you have to sort of try to do what your conscience demands and dictates. And you know, um, it's, uh, it, it just it strikes me that that's the that's what we're doing to each other right now, right? The, the sort of from a distance, and and it's on both sides of the aisle. You you talk to conservatives who um, who are getting the kind of that kind of hate mail from liberals, and they and and then we're defining each other. I think that Senator Ben Sass has called it um, nut picking, mm-hmm. is that we define everybody by that. That's terrible email that we got, and you know and that represents the other side and everything. And it's just and 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 you've had the experience too, where um, you've had liberals who made a lot of decisions about you already, right? And then they met you, and then they kind of went. Oh, I, I told I Stephen I had a conversation <laughs> with a university professor when I opened the bookstore, and after a half hour cup of coffee about what we should stock in the bookstore. He said, this was just really delightful. I'm so surprised. Would not have expected this. So I say that only because I think Stephen is so on point um, with this book about how we move the needle, how we move the needle. You know, this is, we're not old, right? But this is an older audience. Where are the 23, 24, 25, 30-year-old members of the Village Square? Why don't we have them in here Each person in this room is an influencer. If everyone leaves tonight, and some of you are already doing this, but you find your one thing, to Stephen's point, that will improve our community, then you can change the world. It's a Little Strokes, Belgrade Oaks, Ben Franklin type of moment. And we can't control the chaos in Washington right now. We want to, desperately. We all have different opinions on how that should happen. But we can mentor a child at a Title I school here through the United Way's Reading Pals program. We can um, volunteer our time at the Kearney Center for people who are are economically challenged. We can get involved in in our synagogues or our churches or in other nonprofits to make Tallahassee a great place to live and work and raise a family. And because we have influence, we can go out and recruit someone else to do it with us. And that would be my suggestion for one task to sort of adopt the B1 movement that Stephen writes about in here authentic patriotism. Everyone in this room is a patriot. Everyone loves their country in this room. It doesn't matter if I'm conservative and you're liberal or, you know, you're black and I'm white. No one should question that. Um, We should just get together and go get it done. Just go pick something, one thing, leave here and go enlist somebody else to help with it. That's what the Village Square does every day. That's what you do every day, Liz. So you are a true, authentic patriot. I want to ask a question, if I could. I, I, I threatened that I would do this before. I'm curious. Um, this is only my second time um, to Tallahassee. And, and it was really hot both times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we haven't had snow yet in Vermont. It's kind of a disappointment. Um, I'm curious. If you were to say, like, here are some assets that this community has. Whatever, 250, 300,000 people. Here are a couple things that we that we have that are really great that we could build on, or that are just things that are about our town that are great, um, that are our strengths, like that it's the smartest city in Florida. What would some of those things be? 
Yeah. Yeah. The Seattle Arts Community. Arts Community. Great. Didn't know that. Hmm? Universities. Yeah. Beautiful setting. Mm. Beautiful setting. Yeah. Yeah. What's up? Maglab. Waterworks. That's my. <laughs> Have you got a local? I'm sorry? Oak trees. Oak trees. Oak trees. Oak trees. Yeah, it looks like a rainforest when you land by plane. <laughs> Public trails. Yeah. Wow. Macaulay Springs. Macaulay Springs. Good beer. Good beer. Oh, do you know that that book, The Third Place, about like how important good beer is? And the guy, uh, James Fallows, who wrote, you know, the guy who used to be the editor of the Atlantic who flew around the country, and what great towns have in common, and all of them was they had great beer. <laughs> Number one. That was no. It just was like, what do they have in common? Universities was really frequently there because there's a kind of financial, economic ballast, right? They they kind of move along, good times and bad. They in, they import money in, with students and tuitions and housing and clothes and books and all that stuff, and um, and they support breweries, and uh, <laughs> um, but there were there were like the ingredients. Um, this is a lot of great stuff. Public trails never would have known. So how about how about human capital, social capital? What welcoming to outsiders, southern hospitality? How about how often do you go to the grocery store and see someone that you know? Like it's a, it's almost amazing, right? Depending I, on who. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it took me about about five or ten years of living here to realize I could not go to Publix in my sweatpants with my hair like this. Right? <laughs> but that's this amazing gift, too, because it's it's a gift that lets us know each other and be reciprocal towards each other no matter who we are. And, I mean, and there are bigger communities that that's really hard to find. So I think that, I mean, I think part of that is being able to take pride in that. Again, we're talking about the heart and the fact that we're going up and down with so much of this. So really being pleased about that, meditating on it in your heart, talking about it. So I um, uh, work right down the street from Dorothy B. Oven Park, and I go and I sit and I have my lunch there. I get to have my lunch at Dorothy B. Oven Park, which is one of the most gorgeous places that we have in our city. And I go there for free, and there's hardly anyone there. And the first thing that I think to tell my friend, if I see, you know, if the, that I see the next time I see her, is typically to complain about something when I just did this thing. So some of it is that there's also a shift in how we have those conversations because it, um, we are deeply affected as much as we don't think that we are or we think that we're preaching to the choir. We are, we're doing some of those same things in terms of mimicking what we're seeing on the national level in terms of how we have those conversations. What is it that I say to my husband when I get home? What is it that I say to my friends when I have that first conversation? Is it looking like what these positive things are that have helped my heart to soar or is it something that has been... Um, negative in my life that I'm spending my time talking about. To that point, Vita, what would happen if everyone left here tonight and promised not to go on social media tomorrow? Even good social media. Even if tomorrow we, it seems like a good day to not do it, I think, right? <laughs> I mean, what would happen if everybody committed to a 24-hour break from social media and actually used the telephone or had a cup of coffee with a friend? I mean, what is a telephone? 
Well, what is a telephone? Exactly. What is a telephone? No texting. You have to talk to real people, and you cannot go on whatever your preferred news of choice is. Meet them at that park or at one of the public trails or at Waterworks. I just like the name of that. I have a whole idea. The place that makes a great beer. I also think, I guess I want to talk some, too, about the kind of the human cost of the disconnectedness because because we we watch it far away right we're all talking about how many shootings there are um the opioid epidemic and how you know all these terrible things are happening and 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 it is weird we do think about it as being somewhere else someplace else big problem we care about but that means that some percentage of that is owned in this hometown right there's some percentage of disconnected people who are feeling this sense of of loneliness, and you know, we had a we had a shooting, however long it was ago, where um, at the yoga studio, and so you know, there we have people in this hometown that when we're at home on our social media, we're not having relationships with. You know, does anybody just do you think about it? It just it feels like the cost is so deep, and it feels like it's almost feels like if you watch what's happening at Washington in Washington. It's just it's it's messing with our mental health. We're getting we're feeling more and more like that, and more and more dragged into it. But do you guys feel the the sort of the human cost? Absolutely. Well, and even the um, I mean, I think that people are two dimensionalized. So you're just kind of an, a cardboard cutout versus all of these layers of who you are. And so if you keep having to push those several layers that are the only ones that people value about you, then there's something you're losing about all the other complexities about who you are. I want to tell a story, if I could. It's just about what what you were just talking about. um, The town that I live in was, uh, I moved there, I don't know, 26 years ago or so, something like that. And it was mainly a farming community then. And there was a fair amount of um, wooded land and some camps on Lake Champlain. And Lake Champlain is 120 miles long and 12 miles wide, and you can drink it. Okay, it's clean. In fact, about 300,000 people, it is their drinking water supply. It's lovely. And after 9-11, there was an influx of people to our town, some from Washington, but mostly from New York. And for what a decent two-bedroom apartment costs in Manhattan... They could buy a farm, and they could double the size of the farmhouse, and they could pay a farmer to take care of the fields, and they could never work again. And this was happening a lot. It really changed the culture of the town a lot. And by the way, if somebody wanted to build a house for their family that was going to be in the view of these newcomers, they would fight it. They wanted to stay the way it was. It's like, now that I'm here, pull up the drawbridge, right? And it became a really, really toxic town. And for a while, I mean, and I have a lovely place there, and it was hard for me, really, really hard for me to afford when I first moved there, so I didn't want to leave. And I can't afford to be on the lake, but kind of near it. All the lakefront now is incredibly valuable. There are four houses on my road that have been torn down and replaced by houses four times the size. Like, it's really, that change has happened. And it's been, it's been really toxic. And along comes this guy, Bill Fraser Harris. I don't know what he does for a living. I don't know what his politics are. I don't know his background. What I know is that there was a winter it didn't snow. And it's not a good thing if it doesn't snow in Vermont because people don't go out and get in it and, and, and cross-country ski or downhill ski or snowshoe or 
and it was, but it was very, very cold. And so he went up to a place that, where there had been a skating rink next to the elementary school, and there were poles with lights on them. And those lights haven't been on in 30 years. And he did some work to get some kind of a base down, and he fixed the lights, patched up the warming shed, and he went out there, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning when it's 5 below zero with a fire hose. And he put down water and put up a little sign like, you know, wait till 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the ice will be good. And now we have an online bulletin board. And he took care of this. And within two weeks, there was pickup hockey going on every night around 7 o'clock at night. And it was like it was from fifth graders to 70-year-olds out there playing hockey together. You know, and no pads, right? You know, maybe gloves. And, and they play for hours and hours and hours under the lights. And my son, one of my younger sons, literally would eat dinner. He would do his homework like he never had in his life. He was in high school. Get it all done so he could finish dinner and go play hockey for three hours and come back. And he had three hours of being active in the outdoors. And he'd, he'd eat half the refrigerator and go to bed. And he was happiest he ever was in his life. And there was this community that started there. So then he said, you know, the playground down at the town beach is kind of beat up. We could fix that up. And they tried to get a bond passed to buy a new playground. And there, were, there was money that needed to be spent on the school. So the bond failed. And he said, I still think we need it. So he went around and he privately fundraised the money to get the new playground, just the, part, the equipment. And then he said, it's all being delivered on this one Saturday. I need 70 workers. And he had 170 workers. I went by and it was like, there's nothing for me to do here. I'm like 50th in line to turn one thing. And so that got built. And then people were like, oh, this could be a nicer place. And they started cleaning it up. And they started having cookouts there. And then somebody came to them and said, if I gave you some money, would you start a summer concert series? And so now on Thursdays in July and August, classical quintets and quartets and, and duos come up. And they perform there at the town beach. And some people are just coming and going to swim on this little rock beach there. And some people are there to play horseshoes in the back. And the kids are playing on the playground. And meanwhile, about 500 people in this town of 3,000 are sitting there listening to a string quartet kind of thing. And this guy, Phil Fraser, he's the one who suggested that we eliminate parties on the select board. And people just run for the select board as is, which everyone immediately approved. And now it's like if Bill Fraser says, you know, would you just hold this burning log for me? Everyone in the town will say, yes, <laughs> yes. Like, how long do you want me to hold it for? He's absolutely, it's one guy. And, and I'm not a leader in this. I'm a follower. Because he's got it, and I'm ready to follow him and support him and he's like I think we could if we could move it up the hill a little bit and we could get town permission to run some electricity in there so we could have a stage and some lights and some amplification we could have bluegrass concerts too so we'd have Thursday classical and Tuesday bluegrass I'm like yeah he says I need some money and I need some help building it and will you help me talk to these five guys and ask them for some cash Right, and this one guy is, and and I will tell you, our town is has never been better because of what this guy is doing. And somebody came forward and said, you know, the library's full all the time now. Kids are using it so much. We should enlarge it. And he said, I'll run the campaign. And bingo, they raised a million dollars for a library in our little town. And and it was it was just one guy saying, now you know, this guy obviously a house of fire. I don't know how he makes a living. How he's able to get all this done, but we are all willing to follow that person who's got the spark. And, you know, pretty soon he'll be handing those torches off to other people to continue. i got to believe the horsepower is here in this room. If you're interested enough just to even come to this event, the horsepower is here in this room. There's Bill Fraser Harris all around us, right? So, so Sparks, things you want to say, um, microphones back out into the audience before we wrap. And while, um, 
questions, comments, ideas, things you can imagine, things you hope for. Somebody over? You were asking about uniquenesses of this area, and one that has fascinated me now for decades is Innovation Park. It started off with the editor of the Tallahassee Democrat many, many decades ago with, a, with a, a dream he had, and it came to reality. And today I'm fascinated to watch. Uh, I know people at the High Magnetic Laboratory, the elite of scientists, and you've got entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs out there trying, succeeding, failing. You've got different academics at the universities that move out there to start the center for whatever, and uh, the center for whatever may make it and it may not. But the whole idea of Innovation Park is, to me, a very unique, under understood and under-supported part of Tallahassee. Others? I'm still looking outside in from being in Tallahassee for four years, but originally born in Europe. I'm a little amazed how we translate as Americans today, we the people. We are the people. That's what we say. But do we demonstrate? And my wife is the best host you can get. When I got married to her, and we lived in the Far East, in Europe, in America, so we moved around a lot. And we made it a habit that when we moved into a new house, to invite the neighbors. And only in America, the people said, oh, now I could speak to the neighbor. I live next door for 10 years, but I never changed more words than, hi, how are you? I was looking more for the feed into those kind of elements which individuals can do in their family, in their community, before they even talk about Tallahassee. Because I think we all have the opportunity to do it. I proposed it to City Hall, and they said what they always say, great idea. And that was it. Nobody's promoting it because nobody thinks this is really something essential. Why is it not happening? I can tell you from my experience and my understanding. If I listen to the news, news, if I listen to the politicians, they like to divide and rule. That's not helpful. And we are bombarded with those messages day in, day out. We become more individuals than we the people. We have to give we the people substance in our own community. So I want you all to know that my fantasy is that this community has the ability to essentially just give the the hand to to the divide and conquerors, to essentially just say, you know what, we do business differently here. We we know each other. We we um, we are kind to each other. We've got a speaker pair that the Village Square um, brings to college campuses uh, in our college project, and it's um, two women who got to know each other through their kids, and they tell this wonderful story about how um, when uh, one of them's liberal, one of them's conservative, one of them voted for President Trump, one of them didn't, 
And um, the friend who voted for President Trump um, called her friend the night of the election when it had been called and said, you know what, I just wanted to tell you that I know that this was a hard thing for you tonight, and I want you to know that we're thinking about you. Like, what, I mean, where did that go? Why don't we do that anymore? It's amazing. And it, of course, changes everything. And I, I actually, I invited a dear friend of mine. I don't know if you know um, Lee Marshall, who is a drama um, teacher at Leon. And we've got a story kind of like that. It, so when we started the Village Square, I come more from the left side of the aisle. And, you know, and I knew we needed to do something. And I knew Lee, who had kids, and she seemed nice, but she was really conservative. So in some ways, it, you were kind of a curiosity, right? But as we walked, and so she, they helped, she and Adam, her husband, helped us sort of get a start on the village square. And, and actually, we um, called you the village idiots, right? And that you did like a little comedy routine. I don't know if anybody has been with us that long. Yeah, yeah. It, I don't think it's going to happen again. It was like a shooting star. But the thing that happened that's so amazing is that I will never be the same again. I will never see, I will never see the other side uh, winning or losing in the same way because I know Lee Marshall, you know? And, and that is, that's what we need to be doing with each other, human by human by human. And if we don't, like, who will? So in the, uh, uh, I guess it was about a year ago, there was a shooting of some Muslim people in the United States, and one of the um, Jewish communities in Vermont sent, you know, had, has an email list of all their membership, and they all went to services at the Muslim temple that weekend instead. They'd never been there. They didn't know the rules about shoes being removed or what women's role were or any of that. It was all that same awkwardness about, should I mow Susan's lawn? But they showed up. And, um, and that's a big part of it. You know, I'm not sure I would have that courage. I thought it was incredibly cool. But I wanted to read something because I think it pertains. And, you know, we've heard this stuff. We've heard these, the old words a lot of times because, you'll, you know, you mentioned we the people. The old words, words still, still count. Think about a time when that, that was much, much worse for America than now. Okay. We got what 195,000 killed in the Civil War, and this is what the President of the United States says: "With malice toward none." Good try with that. With charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, and to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. The old words, still true, still the work we have to do. I pull the A out on you, it's getting heavy. <laughs> um, can you guys give one more round of applause to see Stephen and to Sally for being here? Yeah. 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 Wow. What inspiring and pretty convicting stuff, actually. 
Corey Nathan back here with you. You know, when Stephen Kiernan quoted from Lincoln's second inaugural address at the end there, it really struck a chord. Coincidentally, I was in D.C. just a few weeks ago, and I had the chance to visit the Lincoln Memorial. And I, I took the time to read through that entire speech, the second inaugural address. And it's carved into that massive wall to the right of the statue of Lincoln as you're walking up to it. There's another passage from that same speech that I found to be so apt to what's happening around our country today. Lincoln said, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces but let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. <laughs> Isn't that something? Two warring sides, both sides thought they were right. Both sides thought they were patriotic to their cause, what they each saw as a righteous cause. Similarly, Stephen poses the question earlier in this talk, is it patriotism or is it righteousness or nationalism? So what's the answer? What's the cure for, a lot of folks call it a cold civil civil war, but it, it seems to be heating up by the day. I was just inspired because I think we got some pretty good answers to that question in this program. I think it was um, it was Liz who said, it's not about us agreeing. It's about us dynamically engaging with each other. And, and um, it, it was Jovita or, or it was Salary who suggested a great prescription. How about we all get off social media for a day, just one day, and we turn off our, our favorite news programs and get together with someone, like a human being, like actually get coffee or a beer with another person in person. Now, wouldn't that be something? That would be a message. A message to the forces that want to divide us, a message with our actions, a message by way of the binds of relationships here in our communities, our neighbors, in our own hometowns. And with that, it's time to close out today. Please consider joining our members and supporting this program. You can become a member for just $7 a month or $76 a year, and your business can join for $250. Go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. That's villagesquare.us slash donate. While you're there, sign up for Village Square's newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square. Go to villagesquare.us and scroll to the bottom for the sign-up box. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. That's floridahumanities.org. We appreciate listening to local patriotism, David versus Goliath. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Squarecast.